Hello, friends. Who are the soldiers that FIDF so proudly supports? They have all stopped their lives, put their own aspirations on hold to defend Israel, to defend our future. Our guest today is no exception. Raised in Jerusalem from 2006 to 2009, Yisrael Klitzner served in the elite anti-terror unit Duvdivan. Yes, guys, that's the Fauda unit. Upon discharge, he rose in the ranks to, be, to become the Diaspora Affairs Advisor to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. He directed strategic engagement for six years at APAC and was pursuing his MA in public policy at Carnegie Mellon University while, cons while also consulting when October 7th happened. Like hundreds of thousands of others, Yisrael's life changed instantly. He immediately returned to duty, leaving his academic pursuits, professional responsibilities, his wife and four kids behind to defend Israel and protect the Jewish future. He was deployed to Gaza, and he is here with us to share his frontline experience. Israel Klitzner, it's our honor. Please give us a glimpse into your experience and impressions during this war for our home as you faced the greatest evil on our planet and are in the fight for our of our generation. Lara, thank you so much for that warm introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, and I... I say this with a full heart. Uh, uh, it is a, a heartfelt thank you that I am sending out to all of you, uh, everyone who has taken part in some way, shape or form in the uh, uh, in the assistance for the IDF in, in any support that you have sent. And I know that, that that has been a lot over the past few months and definitely past few years. So just a, a huge thank you. Um, I, uh, this is not my first time in Gaza. Um, back in 2008, Operation Cast Lead, towards the end of, uh, I, it, was, it was actually the beginning of, of that large operation in 2008, that uh, I was getting ready together with my unit to go into, into the Strip. Uh, the plan was to take over a large the, the the tallest building in Gaza City. Uh, intelligence was telling us that there were over a thousand armed terrorists, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, and that we had to do door-to-door -door combat and take over the entire building. I thought to myself back then, this must be a suicide mission. Um, luckily, I'm here to tell the story, which means that that plan was scrapped. But what I didn't know then, and I didn't have the perspectives to understand, was that that mission was uh, uh, very much called for. Uh, I thought it was a suicide mission, but now I understand that really any Hamas terrorist, any one person with a weapon that could be pointed at any in innocent Israeli civilian is, is nothing short of a threat that, that the IDF absolutely has to deal with. Um, so fast forward 16 years, and the year is now 2024, but uh, we were in October of 2023. And, and uh, on the 7th, when everything began to unfold, and I was beginning to get a picture uh, of, of the catastrophe that was taking place on, on Israel's south, I looked at my wife, we were living in Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, she looked at me, and she, immediately she understood exactly what was going through my mind, which was, I need to drop everything 
uh, my four kids, her school, work, everything, and and go and enlist and and rejoin my uh, my team. Uh, initially, we served for about five weeks in the West Bank, uh, and then we were sent down to Gaza. We entered into the southern part of Gaza, the area of Khan Yunis. Uh, my team was charged with securing what would become a front base a front-leaning base that provided logistical support for uh, uh, much of the operations that were taking place. So, for example, any uh, uh, refueling of tanks and D9s and and uh, a supply of, of uh, different parts for weapons that needed to be replenished at, at in real time, uh, water, food, any other assistance. Uh, we were there at the very beginning when this uh, uh, this front base was was being constructed, um, and therefore also were being targeted because this was uh, very much like being sitting ducks inside Gaza. Um, I was targeted. We were targeted. My team and I by sniper fire, by mortar shells, by RPGs, by tunnels that were detected right nearby where we were staying. Um, I had a bullet, a sniper bullet pass by. I literally saw it fly by uh, no more than half a meter away from me. And um, and that was and continues to be the, the reality in Gaza. Uh, another thing that I, I, I believe brings home what what it what it means to spend a day in in the Gaza Strip, uh, and I experienced this very much the same way back in two thousand and eight, is going to sleep one night in a home uh, of Palestinian X, not really knowing who that person is, but waking up the next morning that that's in a neighborhood, uh, and waking up the next morning where the home that you're sleeping in still exists, but the neighborhood no longer exists. It's been completely demolished and flattened. Um, and for good reason. It's the only way to actually keep IDF soldiers safe and sound and, and be able to carry out their mission, our mission in this case, uh, in the best way possible. Um, I thought I'd focus on a few things uh, that I think oftentimes are, are uh, missed. Uh, so I'm assuming that many of you have heard quite a bit about the Iranian threat and how they've infiltrated into the the you know even though Iran is Shiite and Hamas is Sunni there and they're even even with all that hatred in, internally the hatred of Israel trumps anything in between receiving fifty percent of their uh, uh, financial support from Iran uh, you've heard I'm sure about the Iranian axis and how the the corridor leading all the way from Iran to Lebanon and Hezbollah by way of uh, uh, Syria as well as Iraq uh, is is posing a significant multi-front threat to Israel and the IDF. Um, and therefore, what I decided to say a few things, uh, a few words about, and, and uh, I want to open up to questions as soon as possible though, so that we can have a conversation about this, is, uh, is the threat, what I call the threat from within. Um, when when Israel was struck on October 7th, what many Israelis were thinking to themselves is not only where does this hit home for us and how do we keep our own civilians secure, uh, it's, it, it goes much further than that because, as you know, uh, for anybody who's seen the map of Israel, they know that there are roughly 2.1 million Israeli Arabs who live inside of Israel. Then there are another... Uh, upwards of two and a half million Palestinians living in the West Bank. 
Uh, and that's on top of the roughly 2 million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. And what it all looks like for an Israeli living through October 7th is, is this uneasy feeling of being surrounded by, by people who want to see you destroyed. Um, there is a pollster, a pretty well-known pollster in this region by the name of Dr. Khalil Shikaki, uh, pal Palestinian himself, uh, uh, and, and he conducted a survey after October 7th inside the Palestinian population that uh, that was asking who is in support of these actions that, that were taken by Hamas on October 7th. And the the horrific response that he received was that in the West Bank, it was about 82% of the Palestinians living there supported October 7th, um, the attacks on October 7th. And, and, uh, and, and in Gaza, 57%, which is significantly less, supported Hamas's attacks. But mind you that these are, this is more than half the population in Gaza. And they're the ones who are being held as civilian uh, uh, human shields during this time of war. Uh, many of the projectiles that Hamas is trying to lob over to Israel are actually hitting internally inside their territory and killing many of the Palestinians that are, are being claimed as dead by IDF, by Hamas's Ministry of Health. Um, and, and that's, again, something that uh, is pretty mind-blowing when, when, when you think about it. My wife, uh, this is just a, a side point because I, I counted all Arabs who are living between uh, uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and even inside of Israel. My wife is a physician. She's an ophthalmologist, work, and, and she was doing her fellowship uh, in at UPMC in Pittsburgh, but when she's not doing that, she she's actually can still considered an employee of Shari Tzedek Medical Hospital in Jerusalem, uh, and she has colleagues from East Jerusalem, Israeli Arabs, and she reached out to them when uh, I, I believe it was a day after October seventh, so on, on on October eighth, understanding that their predicament is not an easy one either. Uh, and reaching out just to say, hey, I'm here. I want I want to let you know that I, I uh, I'm here for you. Um, not only did they not really respond to her text, uh, they they didn't express any sorrow, any any feelings of uh, 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 of of being sorry for for what took place. Um, my wife and I have been hopping from funeral to funeral. Uh, one of the people who I served with in the uh, prime minister's office when I was there, his brother was killed uh, not too far away from where I was stationed in, in Khan Yunus. Um, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, just uh, uh, had to choose which funeral he was going to go to because two of his friends, close friends, died on the same day and their funerals were being held at the same time. Um, I, I mentioned all of this, as well as the public opinion polls in, in on the Palestinian side, to to mainly drive home this point of um, 1973, the 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 difficult lesson that was learned of uh, we say in Hebrew, Israel will have to live on the sword and die by its sword. Um, the, that that one cannot let 
their guard down, especially when when enemies are are just waiting for the for the right timing. Uh, and never underestimate that enemy, which is exactly what took place prior to October 7th, um, that that now there's this once again realization that safety has to come way before anything else and any other consideration. And so many things that Israelis are yearning to actually debate about and actually have a hard time with and grapple with internally uh, uh, with issues such as religion and state and, and the economy. Uh, I mentioned Israeli Arabs and how difficult that situation is or how tricky it is. Most of the labor uh, uh, for the housing market in Israel that, that already is to begin with in a difficult position because uh, 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 there's less supply than there is demand um, is is uh, is reliant on workers coming in and out of the West Bank and previously from Gaza as well, but also uh, inside of Israel. And uh, and that's how delicate and intertwined this reality that Israelis have to live is live in. And therefore, I would say two points. One is that um, much of the pressure that's being applied internationally on Israel, I would say, is is probably premature, but also in many cases unfair. Um, to step into the Israeli decision makers' shoes in trying to think about what Gaza looks like the day after, when Israel is still licking its wounds, when there there is still uh, uh, attendance at funerals in mass when when uh, the trauma, the amount of trauma that that Israelis across the board have suffered from, uh, is is unthinkable and unimaginable and is going to take generations to to recuperate from. Um, that that is almost an an, uh, an unthinkable request, and uh, and the pressure that's being applied, I would say, on the one hand, is is understandable because there needs to be a plan for the day after, and decision makers need to be minded towards that. But on the other hand, um, it, there there is a long process, and when connecting to like I was saying, public opinion, not just on the Palestinian side, but it's more specifically and more especially on the Israeli side, uh, the Israeli public is simply not there. Uh, to, to add to that one more piece, when I used to lead delegations, APAC delegations of member, members of Congress and other politically influential individuals, um, the, the most common question that I would receive is, how does Israel solve it all? What is the solution? A very solution-oriented outlook that is is a, a Western way of looking at things, and and understandable, but again, not so applicable to to the Israeli reality. Um, and and when mentioning two-state solution and things of the sort, um, th there's always it always goes back to this tension between what is the very basic core need, Israeli need for safety and guarantees in order to get to that point of what would be a luxury to to begin to consider big picture issues such as two-state solution or or any other solution um and grapple with it but but like i said before there that this is not probably not the time nor the place uh, uh to to do that I'll end, I know that we're short on time, so I'll end with just a, a quick, uh, um, I would say uplifting thought uh, about Israeli resilience and, and how powerful it is. 
there's a there's an author by the name of Sebastian Younger who wrote a very powerful book called Tribe. And he gives Israel as a prime example. He's a wartime correspondent. He embedded himself with the Marines in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and he compares and contra contrasts different wars all over the globe. And one of the things that he says about Israel is that in no place is there such a reality of a, a war being fought literally for the home and actually being able to see the home. Uh, and that is the very tribal and communal sense that that Israelis have. And everybody understands that this is this is the home that we're fighting for. This Jerusalem home that I'm in right now, it is exactly what I'm fighting for. When I was in Divan back in 2006 to 2009, from my base, I could practically see the home that I was protecting. Um, and, uh, and, and what I saw are many uplifting heroic stories that don't happen if it were not for this very basic communal uh, uh, um, existential uh, uh, response that came from, from the Israeli public, and that is wall to wall. And this is, again, uh, uh, coming after one of the worst internal strife that Israel has experienced in its 73 short years. Um, the the division from within was ripping Israelis apart. But when push came to shove, uh, we saw exactly how everything uh, uh, dissipated away, all, all the differences, and and uh, and everybody was able to to set those aside and uh, and deal with the with the real enemy, and that is not the enemy from within, but from without. Thank you. Um... You know, when you speak about the enemy within, I, I think it's an enormous question, you know, the to, to speak about how Israelis can cope and, and be resilient and reservists can continue to do their reserve duty and come back and work and re-enter. I feel like there's this, you know, recurring trauma you know, when you have the, the terror attacks that keep coming, the car ramming right yeah. in Renana, the you yep. know the psychological warfare that they're playing with the hostages that we saw this weekend treating it like a video game when you and then you hear stories like you just shared of neighbors and colleagues expressing no sorrow no compassion no friendship where you felt that there there was there it really feels like an unraveling of of the stability and of just a, a basic basic sense of of, of safety you know how something that you alluded to was that the Westerners and Israel's also has a Western thought is what's the solution? And, and you said that um, that's a Western way of thinking. Can you share with us what is the other way of thinking that the, that the other side is coming to this with where they're not interested in the solution? Can you just illuminate um, why it's a bit problematic to just be thinking that is, what is your answer, Israel? How are you going to solve this? Why, why is that problematic? I, when I try to to unwrap the complexities that that exist in this region, um, it, it there 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 are so many to mention. But I I think just as a microcosm answer to your question, Lara, I'll uh, I'll, I'll give Mahmoud Abbas as as a prime example for why this is so difficult. Mahmoud Abbas, who we know, 
uh, is a Holocaust denier. He is uh, illegitimate in in his ruling over the Palestinian Authority. Uh, is is uh, uh, has not called for elections in well well over a decade, um, and uh, and when he was faced with Western pressure uh, to begin to think about a solution of the day after, as as you were talking about. Uh, and insin not just insinuating, but actually being told by the United States and others that he is not a, a, a small part of the solution, but he is probably the solution or, or you know, a, a core part of it um, or co core component. Um, even with that in mind, he still couldn't bring himself to outright condemn the the barbaric acts of October seventh with Hamas, and one has to ask him or herself why that is, why that's the case, and when one asks that question, uh, they'll be confronted with the same numbers that I mentioned before of the public opinion polls that Dr. Shikaki came up with, uh, and and Mahmoud Abbas know these knows these numbers better than Shikaki himself, uh, and and the internal pressure that Mahmoud Abbas has to not condemn this act uh, is is way stronger uh, for for his political survival than any American or outside pressure would possibly be. And all that is to say that when somebody is looking for a simple solution to a, a very layered problem, but what goes to uh, at the core of it, a, a, a what 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 do people actually feel, right? What 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 do I, Israel Klitzner, feel? What is uh, uh, when 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 I was working for Naftali Bennett? What what did he feel? Um, and and if the feeling is that the most basic element of life, which is safety, if if one feels that they can't breathe the air outside, uh, and that 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 very basic fact of life is being threatened uh then then really all else is is set aside until that is taken care of uh when when somebody tries to put the the uh, uh equation side by side of well but um you know if you don't think bold and if you don't think big how are you ever going to get to a better place it, that might be true but it's a moot point when, when again, there is not the basic element of of safety, of right. of how does one go about life without getting rammed in the streets of Ranana, of uh, 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 how how is it possible that that people who received proper work permits are then using that to carry out terror attacks? Um, it it it. It is both mind-boggling, but also at the same time has has become the sad, mundane reality that Israelis have been have been living, uh, and and crying for people to to actually acknowledge and understand, um, but but no such luck to date, and and I I I, I think that's really unfortunate because until the the. Uh, uh, the the Western outlook, as we put it, uh, is adjusted to some of these very basic realities. Uh, I I don't think we're we're going to get to to a much better place than this. 
It's it's so brutal to hear, um, but we can we can hear how it rings true. Just as we you know continue to go <laughs> and see how things are are unfolding. You know, you talk about this sense of physical safety, but then there's the existential safety, um, the ability to, and I mean that in its most literal sense, you know, the legitimate legitimacy to exist, and what we're seeing now is that under attack in the hague um where israel defending itself is fully under attack that why aren't we making it easier <laughs> um why are we retaliating why are we defending ourselves why do we need to continue and the idf and our idf soldiers are being are all of the crimes that actually hamas committed against us are what we're being accused of in this horrible game of I know you are, but what am I? Um, how are soldiers yeah. reacting to that? What is the what is the morale as as soldiers must continue, but they see this international forum indulging these horrible accusations against them? So first off, morale is really high. Uh, I'll, I'll start with that, and I've I've seen that everywhere everywhere I went. Uh, um, in, in speaking to soldiers from, from all different walks of life and different uh, brigades, uh, battalions. And, and morale, is, morale is high. And the reason morale is high, and this goes to, to answer your question, is this is the most just war Israel has ever fought. Uh, I say that with a thousand percent conviction. And when that's the case, uh, um, Everyone is is fully engaged and 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 is uh, uh, is willing to give of themselves for 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 the sake of of the of the better good of of the hopefully the outcome of this war. Um, it is demoralizing to hear that there is such a big disconnect on the, in the outside world when when these types of things uh, begin to unfold. And and I knew that it was just a matter of time before this reaches the Hague. But if it's not the Hague, that'll come from elsewhere, UNICEF and all these other human rights organizations that uh, that that clearly don't truly understand human rights. Um, the the I would say that this is uh there there is an understanding uh among soldiers I'll, I'll give that anecdotally and and speak for myself right now there's definitely an understanding that this is a pr stunt um and that it's not really going to lead anywhere however it's also clear that this is causing some real public image damage uh for for israel around the world and when accusations are, are leveled in such a harsh way and, and in a way that is so disconnected from reality, uh, it, it's hard to disregard. Um, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which I think is, is uh, you actually alluded to it in your question, Lara. Um, when, uh, when we, when I was grappling with a lot of the IDF deaths that were taking place around me, um these deaths were 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 happening for for multiple reasons uh sometimes it was like i mentioned sniper fire other times mortar shells other times rpgs other times people popping out of tunnels um but oftentimes and i think the the number is at around 17 or 18 percent of the deaths 
that happened inside of Gaza since the war began are, are from friendly fire. And, and the question is, how do you, how, do, how does a family that lost a loved one deal with that? Uh, but even more so, how, 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 do you, how do you make sure that these instances don't occur? Uh, but the thing that I keep going back to for myself and to anybody who I speak to who has encountered this up close and personal um, is that this is this is Hamas's fault. Uh, it 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 goes back to Hamas. Hamas in goading Israel into one of the most densely populated areas on earth, in what is a a completely unbalanced war that is being fought from within mosques, homes, hospitals, and between children in order to reach uh, uh, the IDF soldiers, but even further out, Israeli civilians. Um, and using their hostages, the the now 136 left that that uh, that they're they're using as collateral, um, that's the type of warfare that that Israel knew it was going to have have to contend with, and and is it exactly why in previous rounds Israel didn't go all out because it knew that it was going to entail really difficult war warfare. I gave a grandiose statement before of this is the most just war Israel has ever fought. I, I can also give. A grandiose statement of this is probably one of the more difficult wars that has ever been fought anywhere in the world, um, and 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 Israel understanding that it, it also needs to take on itself, meaning understand that that uh, that that part of the casualties that are going to come out of this type of warfare are going to inevitably be from friendly fire. And that is solely on the shoulders of the perpetrators, and that is Hamas. And people who forget that, right? In this case, it's the families who need to remember this. But in, in the case of The Hague, it's the entire world needs to remember that the only reason that there are many Palestinians who are suffering is because Hamas put us in this position to begin with and made us respond the way that we're responding in in a way that that really is is pushing someone to the wall so tightly uh, that the only way out to eke the, the way out is 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 by way of of uh, dealing with the with the threat of Hamas and making making sure that it's dismantled as much as possible. Right. I, I mean, I think everything that you're talking about, it's just the many examples of the asymmetric warfare that Hamas employs, you know, whether it's the use of civilian shields, the booby trapping of soldiers. You know, we've heard about how they use baby cries to lure soldiers into areas so that they can um, throw a grenade uh, or even using Hebrew to lure them in to, to try and help a fellow soldier so that they can attack them. And it's when you when you hear the stories and it's easy, it's horrible, but it's also understandable how soldiers would defend themselves and friendly fire could backfire. A hundred percent. Yeah, a, a, the, this type of warfare is uh, uh, much easier to fight when you're a ruler of a population, of a large population that not only doesn't care at all about the population it's ruling over, but is actually cynically leaning into uh, the usage of that population in order to inflict. I mean, they they literally want Israel to kill more and more Palestinians so that what's going on in The Hague will ring louder and, and stronger 
on on the ears of the international community. And that's, I mean, it's it's sickening to think about it that way. But when one does, uh, they realize that this type of proceeding is is only advantageous to one party, and that is Hamas. Yes. You know, it's, it's, we can see how what's happening in The Hague, you know, to using your own words is, is a PR stunt, a, an attempt to legitimize those horrible accusations against Israel. But what we've seen is that in the Durban conferences, universities, intellectuals would cite that in order to push their narratives into Western society as, as valid and accurate and, you know, legitimized um, by these international bodies. It, it leads me to a personal question for you. You know, you're, you're sitting here, you're talking to us. What is coming up for you? Are you returning to university? You were at Carnegie Mellon before the war broke out. You were consulting here in the U.S. Um, you know, how, how will you return to university understanding what's happening on universities in the U.S.? So uh, uh, before I get to the university, I'll just say about my my personal life uh, that I've my wife and I have decided to put our lives on hold even further, understanding that the the northern front is likely to open up at some point in the near future, and therefore uh, I'm going to be called back rather than going back and forth with our entire family. We just wanted to stay put for now and see uh, uh, how this thing unfolds. Um, with regards to the university, I. I don't see myself going back to a university that has been so shameful in its response to to Hamas and to October seventh. Um, I was not aware that that when I initially signed up for for uh, my studies of public policy there that they're one of the top recipients of Qatari funding. Um, something incredibly upsetting that I wish I knew ahead of time, and. Um, and I, 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 I just don't see how I make my way back there. I think that uh, these are questions that many Jews are are probably going to start have to asking themselves. Uh, uh, they'll they'll need to ask themselves uh, in the near future and and thereafter. Um, this is uh, this is a dark era uh, to be a Jew in in pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, I still consider Israel to be the safest place to be, even after everything that that just happened. Um, but I, but I, I also understand that there is a, a lot of meaning in in diaspora life uh, uh, and and Jews living all over the world, especially in North America, where where there is a, a great bastion, and uh, and and there is a lot of great light coming out of those communities, and therefore I understand the strength and 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 the the importance of them. Um, but I, I also understand that without an IDF to protect you, uh, it, it, it becomes difficult. Uh, I was speaking to a friend of mine about what's been happening on UCLA campus and, and how frightening that is, uh, to, to actually be a visible Jew. When I was in Pittsburgh, right before I left, I started, I started feeling this irrespective of October 7th. It was before it even took place. Um, that that when I walk out in the street with a yarmulke, uh, I I receive glares, and uh, and and sometimes it's just that gut feeling that you know is there, uh, and there's no way around it. So I I think there's a lot of uh, there's a big uphill battle to to fight ahead 
uh, in the the uncanny hatred that that uh, that Jews are receiving everywhere they live. Um, and I, I think all the more so important that that Jews in Israel and Jews elsewhere in the world, especially in the United States, stand together and and show their might and, and as a united front. Uh, when people try to distract and say, oh, we're not actually anti-Jewish, we're anti-Israel, that is but a distraction of what is true bigotry and Jew hatred. And uh, and and something that, uh, again, I, I think it, it, nobody should stand for it. Nobody should. Important final words. Thank you so very much, Israel. We are so inspired by who you are, your choices to truly live by your principles, with your choice to stay in Israel and continue to defend Israel in our home come what may. Kolakovod to you. We wish nothing but your safety and your success, and that we continue to be in touch with you. Um, you. And, and with all of the soldiers, we, we are forever indebted to what you're doing. And we just, we love you. Thank you so, thank, so much. Thank you, Lara. And thank you, everybody who's listening. I know, again, how much you've done for, for Israel and how much you keep doing for the IDF. I, I think it's incredible. And I tip my hat off to you. And I know that many of the soldiers that I, I fought with, we're feeling the support from afar. So uh, just, again, a huge thank you. The thanks goes entirely to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Friends, we are over 100 days into this war for our home, and we must stay focused. Our soldiers cannot turn the war off. They cannot change the channel, and neither will we. Our soldiers are under the pressure of the Hague. These are wild times, and it's so important that we stand together. Please stand with us. Together we will win. I'm Yisrael Chai, forever. <laughs>